0: Well, what a fitting song. Especially being it's not quite Christmas time yet. So we're, we're uh, celebrating the birth of Christ, but we're just moving right ahead and saying He's King. Lord, I'm impotent as King, right? This morning, uh, message title is Unfaltering Focus. On the first Christmas, and this is not necessarily a Christmas message, um, I had meant to go there. I had a cute little title for a message and so forth, but it seemed like uh, that's not where the Lord wanted me to be. And uh, so I I went with the Lord. And uh, but anyways, uh, this morning I hope you'll be blessed and it'll be it'll be helpful to you as you as you we go into the Christmas season. On that first Christmas, the focus of heaven and and uh, at least parts of humanity were that spotlight was turned onto the small Judean landscape, and that spotlight was shining on a young virgin and her baby, and her and her priest fiance. That spotlight guided wise men to newborn baby of incredible promise. It was heavenly promise, delivered by heavenly messengers, the angel Gabriel. It's shown on the field, that spotlight, where humble shepherds turn of the flocks of sheep by night. What I see is, you know, a, a light shining over the earth and then we have this kind of a stage light comes on and it's shining very directly at one place. And that was on the announcement of the Christ child and his birth and then the uh, evidences and so forth. These some, are some thoughts that I came to my mind as I was thinking about our focus that spotlight, it began fading as the morning star. Paul talks about the morning star rising in our hearts. It began fading as the morning star rose, which is Christ. His light outshone all the messengers and all the messages. And today, today we know this little baby to be our risen Savior and our Lord. However, just as there were Herod's And later Pharisees, Pharisees, and Sadducees. Sad people that don't believe in heaven. They don't believe in hell either. And then there were scoffers and doubters. And then men puffed up with their own knowledge to distract seekers. So are we facing many, many distractions today. And it calls for unfaltering focus on our part. The answer to the seemingly impossible challenges we as Christians face in really connecting with our Savior and really fulfilling His call, I think are answered um, by uh, our willingness to really focus on Him or have direct correlation with our willingness to really focus on Him. Peter uh, and, the, and the rest of the disciples remember the story in, Mar- in Matthew 14. They were out on the sea. And uh, the Lord came walking out on the water. It was on the fourth watch of the night, it says. Jesus was walking on the sea. And the disciples cried out for fear. They, saw, they thought they saw Spirit. And Jesus Talk to them. He said, be of good cheer. It's I. Be not afraid. I'm just out here taking a walk on the water again this evening. And uh, Peter answered and said, Lord, if it's you, uh, tell me to come out to you. He knew better than just to jump out. I think he wanted a command from the Lord and Jesus told him to come. And Peter went. He walked on the water to go to Jesus. Um. It says, when he saw the wind was boisterous. When he saw that wind was boisterous, he was afraid and he began to sink. And he cried saying, Lord, save me. And Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him, said to him, O oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? And they made it to the ship. The wind ceased. And the disciples worshipped. Well, there was a... I think a, a classic example of a lack of focus. Peter saw the wind; he saw the waves; he lost his footing. Maybe I don't know. He doubted. So this morning, the the message, uh, the text is out of Nehemiah. It's Nehemiah six, and I want to look at that on our focus this morning. Um, there's different ways we could look at this passage, but it seems to me that the best way to look at it is that of focus on on Christ. Focus on our work at hand. In this passage, I've been going through Nehemiah. um, This passage 6 is the next in line. And so if you want to open your Bibles to that, and I'd just like to keep these thoughts, these preamble, if you want to call it, or prelude in mind as we... As we work through this passage, Conspiracy against Nehemiah. Now it came to pass when Sinbad and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had builded the wall and that there was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates, there was direct <coughs> I'm sorry. Upon the gates, and I sent messengers unto them saying, I am doing a great work. Okay, let me uh, move back here. Okay, that Sanballat and Geshem said unto me, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Anno. But they thought to do me mischief. And I sent messengers unto them, saying, I'm doing a great work, so I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? Yet they sent unto me four times after this sort, and I answered them after the same manner. Then sent Sanballat his servant unto me in like manner the fifth time with an open letter in his hand, wherein was written It is reported among the heathen, and Gashmus saith it, that thou and the Jews think to rebel, for which cause thou buildest the wall, that thou mayest be their king according to these words. And thou hast appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah, and now shall it be reported to the king according to these words. Come now, therefore, and let us take counsel together. Then I send unto him, saying, There are no such things done as thou sayest, but thou feignest them out of thine own heart. For they have all made us afraid, saying, Their hand shall be weakened from the work, that it not be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Afterward, I came into the house of Shemaiah the son of Deliah, the son of mehet who was shut up. And he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us shut the doors of the temple, for they will come down to slay thee. Yea, in the night will they come to slay thee. And I said, Should such a man as I flee? And who is there that, I, being as I am, would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And lo, I perceived that God had not sent him, but he pronounced this prophecy against me, for Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Therefore was he hired that I should be afraid and do so in sin, that they might have this matter for an evil report, that they might reproach me. My God, think thou upon Tobiah and Sanballat according to these their works. And on the prophetess Nadiah and the rest of the prophets that, they, that would have put me in fear." So the wall was finished in twenty and fifth day in the month of Elul in 20, fifty and two days. And it came to pass that when all the enemies heard thereof and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes for they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters unto, to Tobiah and the letters of Tobiah came unto them. For there were many in Judah sworn unto him because he was a son-in-law of Shechaniah the son of Ura, and his son Johanan had taken the daughter of Meshelam, the son of Barakiah. Also they reported his good deeds before me and uttered my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to put me in fear. So going back again here, the walls were almost up. There was no breach in them except that the gates weren't put in place yet. And again, why was, what was the significance of the walls being finished? These walls meant security. They meant well-being for the Jewish people that had stayed in Jerusalem during the captivity and for those returnees from the captivity, after the captivity. And there was a direct correlation here between the great affliction and reproach and the walls of Jerusalem having been destroyed. And everyone recognized that. The Jewish people recognize that. The enemies, the heathens recognize that. And so we're here, the walls are up, the gates are about ready to go in, and there seems to be a last-ditch effort by Sanballat and Tobiah uh, to get on top of this thing, change things here. So what threat did Sanballat and Tobiah present to Nehemiah. It says they thought to do me mischief. We really don't know what mischief meant here. Uh, However, in some ways, their mission was larger than just to compromise Nehemiah. Um, They were wanting to compromise the work. They knew that Nehemiah was that block in there, that connection towards the work of getting the walls finished. Nehemiah was concerned his work wouldn't get maligned. His real purpose to go back to Jerusalem was to create a sense of security for his people. There was a great affliction and reproach that pained his heart and brought a response from him like we read about in the first chapter of Nehemiah. He says, I sent messengers unto them saying, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. It was a response of resolution. A declaration on Nehemiah's part of being totally involved in his task at hand. Totally committed. Not untrue what he said. I can't come down. I've got too much going on. It says, yet they were persistent. They sent unto me four times. They were persistent. They were insistent in their demands. They wanted him to come badly. Nehemiah was equally resolute in his response. No, I've got things going on. My work's too important. I can't come down. So the attack changes. And they come up with this new attack. It says they sent him a letter, an open letter, saying it's reported. It's understood among the heathen, among those around you. That you're setting up a rebellion. Um, You want to be king. That's what's going on. And you've also anointed prophets to prepare the way for you to be king. These are real um, serious charges. And they're saying, now let us take counsel together. Let's see how we can figure this out. So you're instigating a rebellion. Charge one. You want to be king. That would mean he was being intentionally devious to King Artaxerxes who had authorized Nehemiah to come over and supported him and entrusted to him to do this work. To set up the walls again. Rebuild the walls. Restore Jerusalem. The third charge is maybe the most serious. Saying that he had sent. Prophets. Nehemiah had set prophets out to prepare the way for him. Saying he wanted to... These prophets were supposed to be prophesying that Nehemiah is king-elect. They're saying he'll be coronated. By implication, this would have meant that Nehemiah had corrupted the Jewish religious system or hijacked it, you could say for his own purposes. And it would be in direct contrast what Nehemiah was saying in saying that he was trying to restore his security to the the people and restore Judeo worship, worship of the true God. When in fact, if he was doing what these charges were saying, it would be like if he was manipulating the Judeo worship system for his own good and for his own uh, self-interest. Very serious charges. Nehemiah answers and says, there are no such things done as thou sayest. You're saying a lie. You're making these things up out of your own hearts. He categorically denies these charges. And we know from... The account and from what takes place that Nehemiah was correct. But he says this then, and I find this interesting for they made us all, they all made us afraid. Nehemiah says this, they all made us afraid, saying, Their hands shall be weakened from the work, that it not be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. I find this a very interesting confession, candid confession on Nehemiah's part. Considering the courage he exhibited, he, he says, they made us all afraid. He, he acknowledges that there was a real fear there on his part and on the part of his people. But more importantly is where he went with that fear. He didn't focus on it. He didn't say, look at that, you know, it's going to take me down. It's going to take our people down. It's everything we've done is just going to collapse and go into rubble. But rather, he said, he took that fear and said, oh, God, reminds me of Peter. Out in the water, looked at the Lord, Lord, help me strengthen my hands. Seems to be both a cry of trust and of one of desperation. Then there was a next attack, and this one was a very subtle one. I came into the house of Shemaiah. This is a prophet who was shut up, and this prophet says, "This let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us shut the doors. And uh, for they're coming to slay thee, they're coming to kill you tonight. And you know I'll help you out. We'll go to the temple. We'll go inside. We'll shut the doors." Nehemiah says, "I will not go. I will not do this." And I would like to share some quote from David Guzik here. Um, he's written extensively on Nehemiah. Find his find his commentary very thoughtful and uh, and interesting. Um, this man Shemaiah was said to be a prophet he pronounced this prophecy, but he was not. Shemaiah offered Nehemiah a safe haven in the temple. The idea was that those, Nehemiah could, could, was said to be threatened that he could find refuge in the temple. And in some ways, you would look at that and say, well, that's reasonable. He could go to the temple. Psalm sixty-one-four says, I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. It was here that Nehemiah needed discernment more than ever. And why his resp- response like this? Why should I, such a man as I flee? I believe Nehemiah knew the heart of God in this matter. He would maybe remember, too, like David Guzik points out the, the account of, of uh, King Uzziah. The priests were not, I mean, the, the people were not supposed to be in the temple. Remember, King Uzziah went into the temple on his own, he wanted to take over the priestly duties himself and God instantly struck him with leprosy, maybe Nehemiah remembered that. Um, Somehow Nehemiah knew that that was not the right thing to do. Redpath puts it this way, he seeks to persuade Nehemiah into an easygoing, compromising religion that will shirk persecution, that will carry no cross, and that is governed by fear of the opinions of other people. Let us meet together in the house of God. The Shemaiah knew how to use religious talk, but it was still a trap. If Nehemiah had believed Shemaiah's religious talk, he would have sinned and it would have been given the others something to find fault with and to discredit him with. And that would have been devastating to the work of continuing the the building of the walls, and ultimately the security of the children of of Israel there. He said, yeah, I would not go into the temple. Somehow, Nehemiah knew. Somehow God had revealed to him that this Shemaiah was a false prophet. And he says he was on Sanballat's payroll. He figured that out. And he says, "My God, think thou upon Tobiah and Sanballat according to these their works, and on the prophetess Nodiah. they would have put me in fear. They would have set up an evil report against me for doing this." And so it says, "The wall is finished in the twenty and fifty fifth day of the month Elul, in fifty and two days—an amazing feat." For 100 years, this wall needed to be finished. And it becomes finished in 52 days. In God's timing, God brought this around. There was a completion. It says, all the nations around us saw these things and they were very disheartened in their own eyes. For they perceived that this work was done by who? Our God. This work was done by our God. We walk on the water. We fulfill, fulfill our purposes when our God is in it. God sent deliverance to his people through his, through his own people's faithfulness to him. So in review, I'd like to make this practical and personal way for us what were the distractions again posed by Tobiah and his men in this passage? And how could they apply to us? We need to meet in one of those villages. We need to talk. Why is this a bad idea? You know, Nehemiah knew these guys weren't calling for a pleasant coffee break. He had every reason to suspect these guys were trying to get him away from his people and more importantly, the, his work. And so the, the walls that had been in disarray for a hundred years, years would stay in disarray. Would never be repaired. And the devil works the same way in our lives. Just note that it's when you're making progress in your Christian life, he'll mount an attack. The devil will mount an attack. Whenever the people of God stand up and say, let's get busy, the devil says, let us stand up and oppose. So he'll mount an attack whenever he sees you're making a a um, progress in your Christian life. On a lighter note, on a just take for a uh, you know you're making some progress with your weight loss program, and then Christmas rolls around with all its chocolates and all its sweets and all its goodies, Um, all the coffee breaks, and it messes you up. Um, That's a little lighter note. But on a more serious note, you may be making progress in keeping your thought life pure. And then there's the the magazine, the movie clip, or news report that kind of puts you into a slide again. Momentum is lost. And guess what? You've had a little meeting with Tobiah and his ilk. In the meantime, security has been breached back in Jerusalem. You've been discouraged and other damages have been done. Better to have not left the focus of the work of God in the first place, right? I think if we'd be serious, if we're honest with ourselves, we'd realize that, you know, we can set up the scenario, but that's the way it works. We get distracted. We lose momentum. And then the work is that much harder to, to regain, to, to bring back into place. And I should say distracted. I should say sin. I think it's that serious. Then the next, the next attack we face is the devil saying, you think you're really smart. You know, you want to be king or you want to whatever. You're going through this effort to be really big, to be really smart. You're in a rebellion. I wonder what all was going through Peter's mind when he was walking on the water. I suspect he hit the top and was like, this is great, you know. Bang, hits the water, he's walking. That is just fantastic. And then that wave comes up and it shifts him. And uh, by the time he recovers, maybe Jesus, he doesn't see him. He's looking the other direction. He's disoriented. He's like, guess what? Walking on water has never been my thing. I've never done this before in my life. I don't know how to walk in the water. What am I doing out here? This is stupidity. I don't even know how to swim. I kind of think he might have not. And uh, it's not long and he's going down. He's going down. He's not in his comfort zone at all. And he's concerned. He's done. He's drowning. You know, lack of focus. Lack of... Unfaltering focus. There's this article that I read here just recently. It's out of the Anabaptist Voice. It's very, very interesting. Um, It's about an Asian woman uh, that uh, grew up in a Samari family. Samari warrior family. If I can make this work here, I had the article kind of pasted in. But... uh, She says, I was born in a Buddhist Shintoist family, if I pronounce that right, in the southern part of Japan. My great-great-grandfather was one of the last Samari who fought against the new government army in 1877. My grandmother used to tell me about her mother-in-law, who was a wonderful, obedient wife. She told me that complete submissiveness and deep respect toward one's husband were the important ethics of Samari wives. While hearing this, I said to myself, well, that might have been fine at that time, but the time has changed already. I'm fortunate to be born in the modern equal society. The place I was raised was a traditional area where I had not seen any Christian nor church. Of course, I had heard the name of Jesus in my history class, but that was all. I recognized Jesus as a founder of a Western religion. She enters... This is a, an Asian uh, lady, Christian lady now... She went uh, to university in Tokyo, uh, Japan. Her name is Kinuko Fakami. Anyway, she went there to university, and they, the, the, the uh, professors there um, taught her again about Christianity, but there were a couple of professors there who had converted to Christianity, And she thought, what a shame. Can't they see how we've been threatened by Western cultural colonization? Yes, we should learn from their great civilization. These were her thoughts and its academic heritage, but we should never sell our souls to their religion. But she was ambivalent towards the West and admired the West. And later went uh, to university, had some friends in India and met some Christian friends there who um, who brought her to the Lord. Um, and it completely changed her mindset. She became a leader in a church there. And let me see here if I can catch this really quickly. She became a leader in a church there. And I'll just try to... To, uh, it's a fairly long article um, but it didn't work out things weren't working out well at all she was having relationship problems she was having problems um, um, with the church there and um, the the just overall it wasn't it, it her spirit wasn't responding well to to everything that was taking place and finally she just She gave up her leadership role and left. And it was at that point that she said that the Lord really started working in her life and helping her to see that the reason she wasn't comfortable there is because she wasn't um, obeying God's leadership role. And um, this went on for quite some time. She found a church that was much more closely aligned to how she... Saw the Bible teaching and uh, evangelical church, and while in there, she started having this real um, doubts about, um, or, or having real thoughts about wearing a veiling. She read the passage in First Corinthians, and she was just uh, convicted that that she should be doing that. But she was amongst a people that was only one percent where she was at. There was only 1% Christian population and of that 1% Christian population, there were none or hardly any that would, that, uh, where the ladies would wear a head veiling. And uh, this bothered her a lot. And the reason I'm bringing this into, into the message here is because there was this uh, focus thing was going on again. Um, what made me decide to cover full time? By now, you well know that I'm a shy Asian woman. So it's required for of me so much courage and inner strength to start the head covering practice in the church services. Just the love of God towards love towards God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit made it possible to overcome my timidity and embark on this totally new adventure. You may wonder how it's possible that this shy Asian woman even started to to cover full time. What happened to her? What made her decide to take further steps? Well, I'm going to tell you my story. There's a first attempt where she started wearing a head veiling and then um, she was doing some paperwork. She was out in the public and it just felt overwhelming and so she stopped. Sometime later, and with more prayer, with more consideration, um, she said, although I went back to where my covering only in my private daily life, the inner desire to cover full time never ceased. On the contrary, it increased and burned inside me day by day. I often said to myself, birds in the the sky are free because they fly freely as they wish without worrying about what others think. Suppose you were living, she asked, asking herself, in this town by yourself, what would you want to do? Well, of course, I would joyously go around everywhere with my veil. Then sadly, I looked at my reality. I felt like a caged bird. I was not free. I was not doing what my conscience desired because of the fear of men. And she went on, and with her husband's support, and with the support of her friends, she went on to... um, Go ahead and wear a veiling all the time in that culture, which is very difficult. This article is submitted by Dean Taylor. A very, very good article. If you have an opportunity to read it, um, but what I was, what I was struck with was how that um, it took a tremendous focus on her part to come um, to really be able to move ahead and in, and in her sense, walk on water. It took her. It took her um, you know, to do what, what Christ was calling for her to do. But her testimony is that that's where she found true freedom. In knowing the truth, in knowing God's Word, there will be made, we will be made free. And sometimes it's the call to truth and, the, and to obedience that will bring us to getting done what we need to get done in our own personal life and um, just moving ahead. But our response is going to have to be when we're really, really faced with the doubts is to be like Peter's, Lord, help me. And like Nehemiah's, Oh God, strengthen my hand. There's this this third... um, tactic that Tobiah used, and that is to run to the temple for safety, even if you have no business being there. And tempting God is, is a hallmark of the devil's tactics. It's been said, where God has spoken, there's no need for additional sign. I think of Saul moving ahead without Samuel's blessing and offering the sacrifice. You know, He was in a tight spot. He was there with his army. Maybe food supplies were running short. His army was getting, um, uh, was getting, um, you know, antsy to move ahead, and uh, Saul wanted he wanted God's uh, blessing. And Samuel wasn't around, but Saul wasn't supposed to offer that sacrifice. And Samuel didn't come, didn't come. Finally he's down to the seventh day. Samuel said he'll be back. Samuel's still not back. Saul moves ahead. And you know there was a consequence for that disobedience. A serious consequence, and there are times we'll find ourselves in tight spots. Times when the convenient and the reasonable thing to do doesn't line up with the word. Time when it's, times when it's so easy to fudge our convictions just a bit. Times when we know that it's what right when we know what is right crosses the path with what is convenient or seemingly much less costly. And I truly believe it's in these times, it's our response in these times that will define our relationship with God. And furthermore, our effectiveness in the work of God and our, Christian, our own Christian health. Um, yeah. In this passage, there is a good ending. And praise God for that. Nehemiah didn't lose the focus of his task at hand. Neither did Peter drown in the sea. Their focus stayed where it needed to be, where it needed to stay, on God and on their task at hand, and, and God brought them through. The instrumentally big task of securing the Israelites was accomplished in an amazing short amount of time. Peter did what no man perhaps no other man has ever done, and that is to walk on water. Um, And more importantly, when I think about Peter, you know, he had a lot of faltering steps. We read more about Peter's faltering steps than maybe any of the other disciples. Um, But what is so um, important is to remember how that Peter, while his focus may have faltered a bit, it came back. It kept coming back. It kept coming back. And uh, he did go on to, to feed Christ's sheep. In the meantime, little you and little me, little I, were all called to a similar focus. The call to faithfully run the race before us, one step at a time. Not as one beating the air, but one that is focused in obedience and love for His Master to to truly fulfill His will and calling. It's not an easy task. It's It's going to call more of us than what we had. It's going to call for the grace of God coming out of us. And... We're so blessed to have Jesus. We're so blessed to have a Lord and Master um, who is walking the way with us and, um, and wants us to move ahead. Wants us to be successful in His work. May God bless you.